If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 10. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 10. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I do want to remind you the cross to my left on it this week. We have the names of all those that you submitted to us last week. We have the same thing in the K Hall we received last week over uh, 1,300 names of individuals that you're praying for, that, that you would have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus this Easter season. And, uh, you know, it's not just about inviting somebody to church. We want you to invite somebody to church. That's great. That's awesome. And I hope you do. But really what I'm praying is that you would have the courage and the boldness to tell them about what Christ has done for you. You know, um, I know that most people, most people need somebody to have a one-on-one conversation with them and ask them, do you know Jesus? And when you tell them about Christ, listen, you don't have to be seminary trained. You don't have to have any evangelistic training at all. Really, all you need to, to know is Jesus. And if you've met him, you can tell somebody else how to meet him. And the greatest evangelist ever was the blind man who received his sight and said, all I know is I was blind and now I see. All I know is I met up with this man and he changed my life. And that's really all we're doing. We're telling somebody about what Christ has done for us and what he can do for them if they'll trust in him. So I really want to encourage you over this next next week, be praying um, that God would open a door for you to be able to tell them how much God loves them and what his son did so that they could have a relationship with God through faith in him. Well, if we, as we come to Matthew 18 this morning, um, the more and more I've studied this, the more I, more I believe this text is really about leadership. Uh, you remember Jesus is instructing these 12 men that will lead the church. He's going to hand the ministry off to them. And I sometimes wonder if he didn't think to himself, boy... This is going to be a struggle if these are the leaders. (laughs) Because they struggled to get it. And um, oftentimes I'm guilty of being judgmental towards the disciples. And yet the more I study them, the more I see myself in them. And I don't know about you. As patient as Jesus was with the disciples, I pray he's patient with me. Because oftentimes I fail to get it. But one of the lessons that he knows he's got to teach these guys is lessons of leadership. And what he does in this text is he will show them and he'll show us that a leader is primarily a servant. That a leader is someone who loves and cares for those who are entrusted to him. So much so that he willingly lays down his life and his glory so that they can have life. And who is the ultimate example of servant leadership in the Scripture? None other than Jesus himself. He will be the one who is God. And yet he will give up the glory to come to earth and lay down his life. Why? For us. So that we could have salvation. And Jesus is teaching these guys that's what leadership looks like. That's what greatness looks like. And it's a complete turning upside down of their thought of leadership. They thought of leadership, they thought of the glory, they thought of power, they thought of prestige. And Jesus says, no, no. 
greatness in my kingdom is humility and self-sacrifice and service. This is the true mark of biblical leadership. And so it doesn't matter this morning if you're a husband, a father, in your job, if you're an employer, you're an employee. To some extent or another, do you know that all of us are leaders? I heard somebody say it this way one time that the question is not are you a leader, that you are a leader whether you know it or not. The question is are you following Jesus so that they see a glimpse of Jesus in you. But people are following you in one way, shape, or form. So it doesn't matter what area of your life. This is what biblical leadership looks like. This is what greatness looks like in the mind of God. So let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you that you have instructed us about what it means to be great in your kingdom. And God, the truths and the principles of this text go against everything our culture tells us. The truths of this text go against mainstream thought. But God, I pray that this morning you give us ears to hear and hearts to obey, that as we learn more about what it means to lead and to be great in your kingdom, that we wouldn't simply hear this, but we'd obey, that we'd apply this to our life, that we might represent you well in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So look with me at verse 1. It says, uh, chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this is an interesting question, especially in light of what Jesus has been instructing them. You'll remember all of this. The context begins all the way back in Matthew 16, where, uh, where Jesus asked him, uh, who, who, do, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And then what does Jesus tell them? I am the King, I am the Messiah, but I'm going to go, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And then he tells them again. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And then he tells him a third time, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And oh, by the way, this is your path too. If you want to follow me, you're going to suffer and die. And what are they thinking about? They're thinking about status. In a context of suffering and self-sacrifice, all they can think about is their own position. Who's the greatest? Instead of being focused on the Savior, they're focused on themselves. They're jockeying over position. Who's the greatest? I just imagine the conversation. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us they have a little conversation on the way. And Jesus obviously knows the conversation that they're having. But I've wondered in my mind this week if Peter wasn't saying to to the guys, listen, I'm the great. I'm the only one that got the answer right. You, You losers didn't even know the answer to the deal. God revealed it to me. And they said, well, he also called you Satan. So I don't know what that makes you, but... And then John's probably saying, well, listen, I'm the beloved disciple. He loves me. I don't know about you guys, but he loves me. And Andrew's probably saying, listen, I'm the one bringing everybody to him. I'm doing all the work. I'm the only evangelist here. I don't know what you guys are doing. But here they are. And as we say that, it just, we laugh at that, don't we? Because it just sounds absurd. Because here they are in the presence of true greatness. In the presence of the only one who is truly great. And they're arguing over which of them is the greatest. And it really exposes the root issue of their life, which is what? It's pride and selfishness. And before we become too judgmental of these guys, are we not guilty of the same things? 
that the root of our lives is the same issue of pride and selfishness. That we want to be the center of our own little universe. We want the world to revolve around us. And and I can almost guarantee you it at the root of almost every conflict in your life, every division, every argument, whatever it is, at the root of it is probably the sin of selfishness and pride. In all of us. And so the disciples are dealing with what we deal with. And Jesus knows that if these guys are going to lead the church, this can't be their attitude. If they're going to lead my people, we got to set this straight because you cannot have a man in position of leadership who longs to dominate and loves the feeling of people being under his feet. And that's the way they're talking. I want position. I want status. And Jesus says, he knows you put a man like that in a position of leadership, a man who is arrogant and prideful and thinks the world revolves around him and you are asking for trouble. And he knows if we're going to have a successful church, i got to eliminate this in their minds. And so look at his response in verses 2 through 3. It says, and he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus calls a child, a child that obviously was old enough to walk to Jesus when he called them, but small enough enough that Jesus could, could pick the child up into his arms, most believe child somewhere between the ages of one and three. Again, Mark's gospel tells us they're in a house. Most believe it's Simon's house. There they are in Simon's house, Capernaum. Maybe one of Simon's relatives, we don't know. But a child in the room, and Jesus calls this child's name. I don't know what the name of the child was, but calls the child to himself, and the child just comes and runs to Jesus. Which, by the way, isn't that a beautiful picture? You know, I uh, sometimes down there in the children's area, I'll call a child over, and they run the other way. They see me. I don't want anything to do with him. Jesus just calls this child's name. And the child runs to him. Picture of who Jesus was in his humility that kids weren't afraid of him. And Jesus takes that little child and sets him on his lap and he's going to teach the disciples. Jesus was always kind of getting down on our level, using illustrations that we could relate to, something that we could understand. So here he is, he brings this child up, and he's going to use that child to make two clear points to the disciples, points that they couldn't miss, points that would have been really, really clear. And the first one is, how does a person enter into the kingdom? See, it's interesting, because initially he's not even going to answer their question. Because their question demonstrates that they have missed the critical point, which is not who is the greatest in the kingdom, but how do I enter into the kingdom? And don't miss this here. Pride and selfishness are antithetical to being a Christ follower. That on the basis of Jesus' response, we could surmise that the appearance of selfishness and pride causes him to wonder if they even really understand what it means to follow him. On the basis of of, of their conversation, it's, it's like Jesus says, we got to go back and we got to deal with how you even get in. Not about position. We got to start with the basics. We got to talk about entrance. And what he tells them here is that humility is the primary prerequisite to entering into the kingdom of heaven. You got to become like one of these children. He, so he puts this child's lap, and the child was the epitome of humility. The child was completely dependent, completely needy. This child brings nothing to the table. The child has no title, no prestige. 
In fact, we wouldn't say it this way, but in that culture, children were the lowest rung of the social order. They had no real value in that culture. And yet Jesus says, this is how we come to faith in Christ. See, we come to Christ not on the basis of our own spiritual merit. We come as dependent little children who simply heard the voice of Jesus. We understood our need and we ran to him. What did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. It's the people who understand that they're spiritually bankrupt and they have nothing to bring to the table. When it comes to what we need most to enter into God's presence, we are spiritually bankrupt and we recognize Christ as our only hope and we heard his voice, didn't we? At some point or another, we heard the voice of Christ in our life and we just ran to him like a, like a little child knowing that he's my only hope. And I think what Jesus is doing here, while these guys are arguing over who's the greatest, he's bringing them back to their roots to remind them, listen, when I found you, you were filthy, dirty fishermen. You had no real value. You had no real importance. And it was only because of my grace calling you that you have any significance at all. Here you are arguing over greatness May I remind you of who you are? And do we not sometimes need to be reminded of who we are? That we, if we're not careful, listen, if we're not careful, we'll get so far removed from the point of salvation that we'll begin to think really highly of ourselves, won't we? And we'll begin to look down on others that we think are more lowly than us because we got it figured out and we've learned how to play the games and put on the face and present spiritual righteousness. And what Jesus is saying, don't forget where you came from. Listen, here at Lenexa Baptist Church, you want to know who we are? We're just a bunch of sinners saved by grace. And the only thing we boast of is Jesus. Because all we were were sinners who were headed for hell. And the voice of Christ spoke into our life. And we recognized that he was our only hope and we ran to him. So he shows them that humility is the, the way to enter into the kingdom. But look at verse 4. He says, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying here that not only is humility the prerequisite to entrance into the kingdom, it should be the mark of greatness within the kingdom. Greatness in Christ's kingdom is not demonstrated by the exertion of power or the exaltation of yourself. Greatness in God's kingdom is demonstrated in humility and self-sacrifice. In Mark's account of this conversation, Jesus adds the comment, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That greatness in God's eyes is defined by service and humility. And isn't this the picture of Jesus? Not only as we'll see next week in, in his death and in his resurrection. But you remember in John 13. John 13. Jesus enters in the room. He's close to the crucifixion. But he enters into the room. And what are the disciples arguing about? The same thing they're arguing about here. They never seem to get it. And if I had been Jesus, I would have rebuked them. 
You sorry dogs, how long do I got to teach you this lesson? But that's not what Jesus did. Do you remember what he did? He took off his seamless robe, he wrapped it around his waist, and he got down on his knees and he performed the lowest task possible in that society. He washed their feet. And he said, You want to be great? You serve. You lay aside your glory in whatever room you walk into. In whatever room you walk into, any semblance of power or authority that you might think you have, you lay it aside and you leverage it to serve other people. That's the example of Christ. You know, this week, um, it's the Masters. I, I love watching golf. I absolutely love it. Even any golf tournament, I'll turn it on. I get caught up in it. And, um, but especially the Masters, just the beauty of it. And by the way, pray for Pastor Kelly because he's there today. And if he, knew, if he knew true greatness, he would have sacrificed those tickets for his pastor. That's what I think. And um, so make sure you ask him about that when he returns, about humility and serving others. Uh, but I, uh, and by the way, after the service, if you got your phone out right now, don't tell me that I'm, I'm recording it, okay? So they had to play early. Don't tell me scores, all right? No scores. I don't want to know. I won't go home and watch it on my own. But I, I was watching on Thursday, and I saw this. It just stuck out to me. Because the caddies at the Masters, they, they just really try to humiliate these guys. Because they make them wear these white, goofy coveralls. Looks like a janitor. I mean, can we make the guy any more humble? And he's wearing these white coveralls, and he's in a bunker, and he's raking the bunker. And what made this really interesting is the golf professional, who was incredibly popular and prominent, the golf professional had already gone to the next hole. And here he was in this bunker, raking that bunker to a pristine place. Why? Not, not even for his guy. But for the next guy coming down the hole, whom he's probably competing against. Here he is wearing coveralls in a bunker, raking, wearing a name on his back that's not his. Completely serving everybody else on that course. Now the world looks at that situation and says, that golf pro, that's greatness. And I think God looks at the bunker and says, no, that's greatness. You see, it was a good reminder to me. You know what I am? Nothing more than a spiritual caddy. And we may put on some nice clothes, but you know what? Spiritually speaking, we should all be wearing a bunch of coveralls. And we don't have our name on our backs. We have the name of the Savior we serve, the greatest pro ever. <laughs> and what should mark our lives is continually giving ourselves away to the good of others for the glory of Christ. So the way into the kingdom, humility. The mark of the kingdom Humility. And then he moves into a, set, a portion of application. 
Look at verse 5. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Jesus is saying to the disciples, the the leadership of the church. Remember, these are the guys who are going to lead and instruct. He says, you came into the kingdom, you're a child. But now you're going to serve my children. So these guys, they're going to be the leadership in the church. And he says, these people that you're going to lead and instruct, don't forget that they're primarily my children. Now, when we get in this portion, I really think this is most applicable to us as pastors and leaders in the church. And what he's saying is you got to be careful because if you're not careful, a lot of pastors, they'll start to think, well, that's my church and those are my people. And Jesus reminds the 12, when you go out to serve, they're not your people, they're my children. They may be weak. They may be dependent. They may frustrate you, but they're mine. Receive them. Anyone who receives one such child, that word receive, it brings to mind the, the, the idea of courtesy and honor and dignity. To receive someone is the idea of someone coming into your fellowship and treating them with honor. He's saying, you treat my children, you treat those people with honor and respect because they're my people and how you treat them is how you treat me. Jesus is saying here, you cannot separate Christ from his people. Christianity is not just a religion where we're, we're following the teachings of Christ. No, we have become united with Christ. We are the body, he's the head, he's the vine, we're the branches, we're united with Christ. In fact, you remember when Saul was on the road to Damascus and he encountered Christ, Jesus comes to him in that moment and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who was he persecuting? He was persecuting the church. But Jesus was saying there to Saul, you pick on my kids, you're picking on me. That Christ and the church are inseparable. Look at verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it'd be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus is giving a very stern warning here to anyone who would seek to use or abuse his children, anyone who would seek to take advantage of, steal from, make money off of, hurt or endanger his children. It's a powerful picture, especially to all leaders and pastors within the church. In fact, this week I realized if I ever get invited back to preach at the seminary, this is the text I'm using. Because there's a powerful warning here. The picture here is you hurt one of my kids. You'd be better with a millstone hung around your neck, tossed in the sea to be eaten by fish and sharks and left for dead, never to be remembered again. That would be better than having to face me in my wrath. Could the picture get any more clear? Especially in light of today, when you think about the sex abuse scandals, when you think about those who have laundered money out of the church, when you think of those who have manipulated and used the people of God to line their own pockets, the question is, do you not fear God? I mean, we all know as parents, right, that it's one thing to hurt me. I can take a lot. But you abuse, manipulate one of my boys, you better watch out for me and their mama. (laughs) Parents, we know this to be true, don't we? If that's how we as earthly, sinful humans feel, imagine how our perfect, eternal father feels about anyone who would seek to do harm to one of his children. 
Look at verse 7. Woe to the world because of the stumbling, it's stumbling blocks, for it's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Woe is a word of condemnation. It's as if God's hand is raised, ready to judge the world. And God will judge this world. And in this world, there's all kinds of temptations. I believe that the temptations and sinfulness of the world is more prevalent. It's more available. It's more accessible than it's ever been. If you don't believe me, try raising a teenager in this culture. I mean, it's all around us. But the danger, the warning here is not so much for the world because it will be judged. The warning is for anyone who would lead somebody into sin. The warning is for the person who leads another person into temptation. That we as leadership, he's saying here, you lead one of my kids into temptation. You put them in a position to stumble. You will face my judgment. You know, the question is, with all the abuse scandals in the church, will these guys get away with it? No, they will not, believe me. They will stand before God and they will give an account. Look at verses 8 through 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and cast in the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be cast in the fiery hell. Wow, another powerful picture. And again, I think he's speaking primarily to leadership within the church. He's speaking to these 12 guys. He's saying, listen, you as leadership, if you have areas of temptation in your life, if you know you have areas where you have tendency to sin, you do whatever is necessary to cut off those areas of your life because the momentary pleasure that you might receive from that sin is not worth the eternal weight of judgment that you'll face from me. It's not calling for the maiming of our bodies, but it is calling for extreme measures to protect ourselves from sin. And this is a good idea for all of us. We all have our areas of weaknesses, and you better know what, what they are, and you need to make sure that you take measures to not put yourself in positions and situations where you're tempted to sin. And the word stumble, it's interesting, it stumbles into sin. And I think it's so applicable because most of us don't wake up in the morning saying, boy, I hope I can sin today. I'm going to run into it headlong, and it's going to be great great and awesome. No, we just kind of stumble into it. Why? Because we put ourselves in positions and situations that we shouldn't be. And I think Jesus is calling for extreme measures. You may look different in the world's eyes. You may look odd, but listen, don't put yourself in a place. It's not worth it is what Jesus is saying here. And then look at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heavenly heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. That word despise means to look down upon. Uh, James chapter 2 deals with this issue, that it means that in the church we don't judge on the basis of physical appearance, that we don't tr treat this, this sharp, handsome, well-dressed, uh, successful businessman any different than we do the person who walks in the church and is living hand to mouth. We don't judge on the basis of physical appearance. We don't despise people because of where they live, the kind of car they drive, or the job they hold. Why? Because every person that enters into this room, every person that's in the kingdom of God is incredibly valuable to the heart of God, eternally valuable to the heart of God. And if they're valuable to him, they better be valuable to us, regardless of what they look like to you. And he even in the latter portion of verse 10 says, For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
And there's some credence here along with first, or Hebrews 1.14 to uh, guardian angels. And I don't think, as I've studied this, the idea is that each of us have a, an angel that's assigned to us as much as it Scripture presents this picture that, that God has these angels at his disposal who are continually serving him, and he sends them down here to minister to us. Do you know that? Hebrews 1.14, they're ministering servants called to serve those who repent. And I think the idea in this passage is these children are so valuable to me that I send my angels to watch over them. That's how valuable they are to me. So you take care how you deal with them. Don't you despise them. Do you see the picture of this text? Arguing over greatness. Listen, we're all sinners saved by grace. And his leadership, Jesus is saying, don't you forget it. And you take care how you watch my children. I want you to do something very briefly. Look over at 1 Corinthians 3. I couldn't help but keep going back to this text as I was studying this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you know, the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, for when one says, I am Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are they not mere men? So you got a church full of people who are saying, well, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, he's great, and Apollos preaches better than Paul, and I'm following that guy and all this. Look at verse 5, what then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. You know what Paul says? They're all nothing. It's amazing what we are impressed by as individuals. We get impressed by guys that can hit a golf ball. We get impressed by guys that can put a little basketball through a hoop. Do you think any of that impresses God? I was reminded of my mentor in Montgomery that used to tell me, listen, God's not impressed by how many people come to your church. He's not impressed by your preaching. You're nothing. We're all just sinners. What does Paul say? Look at verse 6. I planted Apollos watered and but God was causing the growth, so neither, one, neither, uh, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. You know what Paul says? We're just farmers. This guy, Apollos, that you're so impressed with, he's nothing but a farmer. You ever heard of a celebrity farmer? I've never met one. Don't see any celebrity farmers. Farmers on Twitter or Instagram. Because a farmer, he just does his labor. And when Jesus says here, you want to impress me? You know what you'll be rewarded on? Your labor. 
Were you faithful with little plot of ground that I gave to you? Did you love those people in a way, in such a way that they don't ever remember you? But they loved me more. That's greatness. You know, you've heard the saying that we're all just spiritual beggars. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's all of us this morning. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. I hope you're not doing anything to try to impress him because you can't. All your religious work, all your church attendance, can I tell you, it's nothing in light of the holiness of God. But if you would be willing to humble yourself this morning and acknowledge that you're a sinner, Jesus says, come on. Because I have the righteousness you need, and I will impart it to your account on the basis of faith. Isn't that good news? And then we get to go out into a world and tell people, you know who I am? I'm nothing. I'm a nobody who met somebody, and he changed my life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace that was demonstrated your love that was demonstrated in the cross where you died for our sins. God, I pray if there's anybody here that this morning that doesn't know you, never trusted in you. God, I pray that they would understand this morning there's no amount of good works that they could ever perform to get to you. That we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. What we deserve is death, separation from you. But you came for us. You love us. And you did all the work. And now the the righteousness of God, it's overwhelming that this is possible, but this morning the righteousness of God is available to, to all of us today, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of belief. That Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God, I pray if there's anybody here that understands they're a sinner, I pray that they would humble themselves, believe in you, and receive your righteousness, your forgiveness. And they'd become one of your children, your beloved children whom you love. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that humility and service would mark our life. That we would live for one name, Not ours, but Jesus. May we live in such a way that we point people to the only hope of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.